Welcome to the Mindstream Podcast, exploring the facts and the stories around mind-body-spirit pathways to greater health and happiness. I'm your host, Liza Haran. Episode 5 features an interview with Dr. Caroline Watt. She leads the Kessler Parapsychology Unit at the University of Edinburgh. Our conversation covers fascinating research on metaphysical mysteries of the mind and the challenges that come with it. How did this university founded in 1582, whose alumni include Nobel laureates, Olympic champions, space explorers, and prime ministers, come to focus on mental phenomena? Stay tuned. We'll find out. Before we join the conversation with Dr. Watt, let's overview the top mind-body-spirit headlines. The top story in health, of course, right now is COVID-19. As of the 5th of March, 97,000 people have been diagnosed with COVID-19. 3,300 of them, unfortunately, have died, and 54,000 of those cases have recovered. The news today is that there are two strains to the virus. One brings mild symptoms, and the other one is life-threatening. Besides the human suffering associated with COVID-19, we're seeing a bit of a fallout on the economic level too. We've seen dramatic drops in the stock markets. And today, the United Nations economists announced a likely $50 billion drop in worldwide exports. And that's just considering February. We don't know how long this impact of the virus will continue, but countries like the UK are seeking now to delay the spread and contain it. And all the authorities are saying that the best measures we can take against the spread of this virus is practicing normal good hygiene. That's washing your hands in hot water with soap for the length of time it takes to sing happy birthday twice. I'd like to highlight a few of the top points from the last month of the Mindstream News Wrap. This is a new feature on MindstreamConnect.com where I summarize and provide perspective on some of the top headlines in the mind-body-spirit movement. The fact is, there's so much information out there, and it's totally overwhelming. So I'm trying to make things easier for everyone to get the scope, and I hope you will find it interesting and useful. So moving on to more positive news in regard to complementary alternative and natural health solutions, research has just been released that points to virtual reality, acupuncture, massage, and plant-based medicines as solutions to reduce pain and help symptoms. Specifically, virtual reality has been found to help women with labor pains associated with childbirth. So imagine strapping on a VR headset rather than getting a spinal. Massage is being found to help patients cope with cancer and also to improve neuropathy associated with chemotherapy. 
acupunctures in the news for two reasons. Both acupuncture and plant medicines recently have been found as an alternative to opioids for pain relief, and acupuncture has reached a new level of acceptance by the U.S. Medical Institution as two of its very large healthcare plans, Medicaid and Medicare, have finally approved acupuncture for the treatment of chronic low back pain. Research into relationships have shown that they have significant impact on quality of life and our longevity. Two books I'd like to point to that were recently released. One is called Friendship, and that was written by Lydia Denworth, a science journalist. She writes, friendship literally improves your body's cardiovascular functioning, how your immune system works, and how you sleep. But there are more benefits. She pointed to a study that showed the best predictor of your health and happiness at age 80 is not your wealth or your professional success. It was your friendships at the age of 50. So what is friendship? She relied on the definition that biologists give for friendship. See how this compares to your own. They define friendship as a positive, reciprocal, cooperative, long-lasting experience that makes you feel good. Seems pretty simple. But what is the biggest Thing that we're missing in our relationships, it's listening. And that's according to Kate Murphy, who authored a book called You're Not Listening, What You're Missing and Why It Matters. She points to research that we listen more acutely to people we're not close with. Whether this is politeness or something else, it's fascinating. So those are the two big messages of these two recent book releases. Surround yourself with good friends and also listen. (laughs) And an interesting development to invite more kids into meditation and positive mental health Headspace, the meditation app company, has partnered with Mattel for the Barbie Wellness Collection. Among this collection is Breathe With Me Barbie, which includes five meditations. I devoted a whole edition of the news wrap recently to plant-based medicines because the medicinal plant market is expected to be worth $5 trillion by 2050. This is staggering. Uh, That's bigger than the whole wellness industry and the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, However, controversy still exists around the use of certain plants and medicines derived from them. Israel and Canada happen to be leading cannabis research because their laws allow it, but the guidelines may be loosening for exploration in other areas because the International Narcotics Board presented its annual report and said, our guidelines are so old, we need to revisit them. Some of the very exciting research shows that cannabis is helping with a range of issues, from pain relief to sleep improvement, whether or not it has the psychoactive THC component in it. 
Ayahuasca is helping those with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and ecstasy, or MDMA, which comes from the sassafras plant, is being shown effective for treatment-resistant depression, and Israel is already allowing prescriptions for MDMA based on that research. Psilocybin, also known as magic mushrooms, is gaining momentum as an alternative to opioids, and already three U.S. cities have legalized the use of psilocybin for this. The last piece of news I'd like to share with you today is the Global Wellness Trends Report for 2020 and beyond. This has been released by the Global Wellness Summit, which is part of the Global Wellness Institute. They named 10 trends everyone should be aware of. And what's magical is that an awful lot of them are mind, body, spirit solutions. Just to give you a sneak peek of three of those, energy medicine is being recognized by scientists and researchers. Their work is recognizing that we are indeed a complex biofield of electromagnetic frequencies and light waves that are a control center for our physical and mental functioning. So expect to see therapies that involve electromagnetic, light, and sound interventions to heal our energy body. Of course, acupuncture, chakra balancing, Reiki, Qigong, sound baths, and other mind-body-spirit disciplines have been in use for millennia to accomplish this. But now what we're seeing is the Western scientific and medical institution catching up with what the ancients have known. Another trend is circadian health. We're continually learning about our natural rhythms of how we can perform efficiently and better during light time and nighttime. This is going to affect our diet as well as our sleeping. So stay tuned for that. And thirdly, music sound healing is going to be taken to another level. There's a whole lot of funding going into medical studies about how sounds and how music affect the brain. Biofeedback, artificial intelligence, and machine learning are helping identify how music's structural properties like the beat, the key, the chord progressions, and the timbre specifically impact biometrics like heart rate, brain waves, and sleep patterns. So researchers are looking to develop music as precision medicine to help with everything from pain to PTSD. You can see the full list of the 10 trends for 2020 and beyond and perspective on them at mindstreamconnect.com blog. To get the sources and the links and more information on the topics we just covered in the news segment, please go to mindstreamconnect.com. You'll find the news wrap there, plus other stories on the blog. And I encourage you to sign up for the Mindstream Monthly. This is our new email newsletter. There's going to be several opportunities that are presented to participate and get connected with like-minded people, whether you are an enthusiast of of mind, body, spirit, or you're a professional practitioner in this area. So you can go to mindstreamconnect.com for that. 
Now let's join the conversation with Dr. Caroline Watt, who heads the University of Edinburgh's Kessler Parapsychology Unit. Dr. Watt, welcome to the Mindstream podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Can you begin by telling us about the work that you do at the Kessler Parapsychology Unit? Well, we're a, a research group within the psychology department. Um, we are unusual. We're the only endowed chair in parapsychology in the UK. What that means is that we have a, a source of funding to support us. So when I say endowed, it means that um, Arthur Kessler and Cynthia Kessler left money in their wills to support the establishment of parapsychology research at a British university. So our work here um, is actually not just research, although that's what people are most interested in. Because we're part of the university, we are integrated with the psychology department. So we're, psychology is our home. And we teach psychology students about parapsychology. And we also do research in parapsychology. And um, we also do, just like every other academic, we have to do rather tedious administrative tasks like running committees and managing courses and so on, marking essays and all, all of the normal activities that a, a kind of fully-fledged academic would do. This is part of the psychology department, as you just mentioned, and you mentioned there was an endowment created by the Kesslers. So that explains why it is here at the university. Can you give a little insight to how the Parapsychology Institute actually fits into the culture or the values of the University of Edinburgh? Our mission is to promote excellence in parapsychology research and education. So that fits very much with the university's wider goals, which is excellence in uh, academia, in research and in education. And, and I say education, I think I might have mentioned teaching before, but when I say education, um, we're talking both about teaching students who are matriculated students at the university, but also engaging with the general public and the wider public to tell them about what we do, what parapsychology is, um, because there are a lot of misconceptions about that. Can you dispel some myths for us, please? Yes, uh, one myth is that um, parapsychology is all about ghosts, for example, um, you know, about ghost busting, sitting in a haunted location with a camera in the middle of the night and um, seeing if you can catch anything or measure something on an EMF monitor. Um, so the, the problem with parapsychology is that there's a lot of baggage associated with the name parapsychology and anyone can call themselves a parapsychologist you know there there are no sort of professional qualifications or there's no organization that basically can endorse someone as a parapsychologist and um, so anyone can say I'm a parapsychologist um, that um, presents a problem for parapsychology now we do have uh, the parapsychological association which I, I would say, if anybody wants to know, you know, am I dealing with a reputable parapsychologist or not? Uh, I would say check to see if they're members of the Parapsychological Association. It's uh, an international association, but they have um, kind of criteria for membership. And uh, to, to become a full member, you need to be active in research in parapsychology so that you have some sort of track record of conducting research, by which we mean scientific research that is then published in scientific journals. It's not sitting in a dark room looking for ghosts in the middle of the night. The um, myth that we have to dispel is that parapsychology is um, just ghost busting, um, but that it, trying to establish that it's a scientific discipline. Great. Any other myth you'd like to mention? <laughs> 
Yeah, I think there's a preconception, maybe more so amongst the scientific community than the public, uh, that parapsychology is a pseudoscience. Not everybody is like this. In fact, some academics are more open-minded than others towards the field. Um, It's interesting that probably the most open-minded are the physicists. Um, Now, although physicists are very hard scientists, um, I'm using inverted commas there, But there are also a lot of um, very unusual theories in physics. So I think physicists are used to thinking out of the box and theorizing, coming up with unusual ideas. And those researchers who've sort of surveyed different academics find that um, physicists are more open than than others. And um, we're within the psychology department. And I think psychologists are understanding of part of what parapsychologists do. So part of what we do here in Edinburgh is look at the psychology of paranormal belief and experiences. So why do people believe in the paranormal? Um, What uh, kind of experiences do they have? And what might be the, the reasons for these experiences? And that's an area of parapsychology that overlaps quite closely with psychology Some people call it anomalistic psychology rather than parapsychology, so it depends on your definition of the term. And psychologists see that as very close to what they're doing anyway because it's looking at questions such as what sorts of personality of people are more likely to report paranormal experiences. That's a very psychological question. Um, The part of parapsychology that's more challenging for psychologists is where you start to test the idea that people have genuine psychic abilities do they or have the ability to read each other's minds through telepathy or can they influence physical objects through psychokinesis and that's a more challenging hypothesis but so long as you conduct the research well so it's well controlled research then it's accepted at least amongst my my colleagues here at Edinburgh and um, you know we've some some of this work is published in mainstream psychology journals as well so it has a foothold in mainstream psychology but you really have to work hard to demonstrate that you're doing proper science it's not a pseudoscience you're testing hypotheses you're thinking about possible flaws in the design and trying to rule them out so a lot of our time as parapsychologists is spent trying to show other researchers that we know what we're doing as scientists that's part of my mission if you like is to say you know we're we're doing uh, good good quality research it's almost as though you have a higher standard that you have to almost prove your legitimacy amongst other academics. Is that right? I think that's absolutely correct. Um, and I think it comes from the claim that's being tested. So you, you've probably heard um, the, the, the philosophy of saying extraordinary qu- claims require extraordinary evidence. Now, not everybody agrees with that. There's lots of flaws with that because what's extraordinary in one time period is, is not extraordinary in another. It just depends what we know at the time. But I think in practice, that's the case for parapsychology because we don't have at the moment wider um, theory that allows us to explain how a person could read another person's mind. We don't know the mechanism. What is it about the brain or the mind or the spirit that, that would allow this to happen? And um, then it makes it challenging to, to sort of um, explain if people can do it in a, a scientific environment, in a controlled experiment. So I think that's, an, that's a challenging claim. 
And therefore, you have to provide a very high standard of evidence for that. And and my um, belief, actually, is that because um, parapsychologists have a history of presenting a claim, testing a claim, and then having that scrutinised by sceptics, sometimes the sceptics are from within their own field. So they're sceptical, they're thinking critically about what this researcher says they found evidence for mind reading, but we think there's a mistake in how they did their study. So sometimes that criticism comes from within the field and sometimes it comes from um, outside of the field, from outside sceptics. But that's actually a bit like a kind of a Darwinian thing. Um, It drives up standards. So if you are uh, continually uh, making a claim and then having that claim scrutinised and having to think about how to design your study to rule out alternative explanations so that you're trying to establish, I've stopped any other form of communication, so that means that we have evidence supporting the extrasensory hypothesis. You know, in order to do that, you have to think very carefully. So standards get driven up over time. And I think you can look at the history of parapsychology and see that, and you can point to particular occasions where parapsychologists were actually ahead of the game compared to psychologists because the parapsychologists were dealing with difficult questions and questions that were being challenged. The psychologists are, sorry to my colleagues who are studying memory, but they might be, you know, asking questions about how many digits can we recall? You know, it's not particularly challenging or controversial. Um, So, you know, if you're not doing that kind of research, then you're less open to scrutiny. You're less subject to scrutiny. Now, the other field that also gets a lot of scrutiny, but for completely different reasons, is medical research. So parapsychologists um, are under scrutiny because they are um, testing a controversial claim. Um, In medical research, you are testing a claim um, that could be critical for someone's health on their life or death. So it might be this drug. Does this drug work or not? Does it you know, cure cancer or whatever the, the claim is? And therefore, for similar reasons, and medical research has been, um, it has had higher standards in general um, in terms of trying to um, establish whether there's, there's good evidence for this. So one of the techniques that parapsychologists use called meta-analysis, which is a kind of statistical way to combine studies. Um, in parapsychology, we were quick to pick up meta-analysis, but um, not in psychology. It was a little bit later. But medical researchers were doing meta-analysis from quite an early t- stage as well. So that's just one, one example where there are other disciplines where the standards are particularly high, but not necessarily for the same reason. So you can just get an improvement in, in quality of research, depending on the drivers that are behind that. It is so fascinating. Thank you for explaining that. You said the physics department seems more drawn to what you're doing or open to it. I don't know too much about it, but I do hear things like quantum physics getting into the area of the metaphysical and that they've proven that two disconnected particles can actually affect each other, which to me (laughs) is enough to say, well, that's why I know when you know, my mother felt that way, even though she's on another continent, that kind of thing. That's a very big topic. But just to kind of bring it down, do you feel that parapsychology and physics doesn't have a great ocean between them? Well, parapsychology is an interdisciplinary problem area. So what uh, discipline is relevant for it 
depends on what question you're asking. So um, the question of how does telepathy work, what's the mechanism to allow apparently information instantaneously to move from one person's mind to another, that's what, what, what the claim is, um, that's a question about physics. You know, it's about what capabilities do we have in the universe to allow something like that to happen. Now, another question might be what sorts of people are psychic? That's a psychology question. You know, so, oh, it's people who are extroverted are more psychic. In fact, some of the research suggests that people who are creative um, have done particularly well um, with one kind of research in parapsychology. This is the Gansfeld research. And I'm going to talk about that hopefully a little bit later. Um, so that's a psychology question. So it's not that parapsychology is drawn to a particular discipline. It depends on what question you're asking. And you're, you're right to mention quantum physics and that there are a lot of strange things in quantum physics compared to um, Einsteinian physics. Um, now, quantum physics deals with very, very small scale tiny, for us, unimaginably small particles. And there's a debate amongst physicists whether that's even possible to map from that onto human biology, which is warm and wet. This table for us is solid. We're in a Newtonian or an Einsteinian world. And in the quantum world, this table is mostly space. So which world applies best to us? I'm not an expert in physics, so I, I couldn't say. But a lot of people have spotted similarities between um, what's happening in quantum physics. You mentioned the double slit experiment where you see two particles behave simultaneously. And there are some parapsychology theories that are coming off the back of that that are quite interesting. So they tend to um, not necessarily take it literally that there are quantum phenomena happening, but they might say that um, if the circumstances are right, you can get quantum-like phenomena happening. And it's like, not necessarily to do with um, the movement of a signal. You, you mentioned one particle behaves as if it knows what the other particle is doing. Um, parapsychologists think it's maybe a bit more like a synchronicity um, that um, the universe is set up in such a way that this particle is this way, the other one must be that way. So it's, it's not a, a transmission model, it's more of a, a kind of balancing, if you like, that has to happen. If one is one way, the other one has to be the other way. There are lots of different varieties of, of theories in parapsychology, but I think people are more excited at the moment about the kind of quantum-based theories. I'm not saying they're taking it literally. Um, it can be a bit embarrassing. There, you know, Sometimes people do talk literally as if minds are entangled in a quantum way. I'm not sure that that helps parapsychologists because at that point physicists think, you know, you're just nuts. You don't know what you're talking about if, you, if you're going to say that. Dean Radin, for example, is a researcher who's written a book called Entangled Minds, where he looks at, and I would recommend it if you're interested in areas of overlap between parapsychology and quantum physics, you know, look at that book to get a sense of what similarities there might be. But he, he himself is very cautious, Dean, when he's publishing this research, and he's done work looking at the double slit experiment that you mentioned with the two two particles, to see if you have an observer looking at that, can they influence the outcome of the experiment? He claims that they do. So he claims that this shows that the observer, the conscious observer, is important in the system somehow. And um, it's not my area of expertise. I'm not a physicist. So I don't know if there's any way that a physicist could, could criticise that. But certainly, you know, he's, he's looking at that question, which I think is really interesting. It's very interesting. Thank you for bringing that up. 
One of the things that I've heard in Einstein said it is nothing is is, um, created nor destroyed. It just changes form. So that's energy. I'm a believer. I'm a believer in all this connectedness and that it is a matter of energy, but proving it is someone else's task, I suppose. Of the work that you've been doing here, what are you most excited about? I'm always most excited about what's coming next, I suppose. The Gansfeld method, uh, which is a, a sort of mild sensory isolation procedure, um, it's been used since the 1970s by parapsychologists to test for extrasensory perception. They use it because they think that um, if ESP exists, it's um, obviously not a very obvious, very strong, otherwise we wouldn't be arguing about whether it exists or not we'd all be using it every day and we wouldn't have to use telephones or anything so if ESP exists it seems to be rather weak um, you know not easily noticed except perhaps from time to time and therefore if you put people into this altered state and relaxed situation where they're more able to notice what's going on inside their their minds then you're more likely to find evidence for ESP so they think we call it psi conducive Psi is the term we use to refer to the ostensible paranormal phenomenon. So the Gansfeld method has been um, showing quite positive results, actually, over the years. So and it's been uh, meta-analyzed, it's been uh, published, and kind of groups of studies have been published, sometimes in mainstream psychology journals, reporting generally positive effects. So there's a claim there Um To me, it's not entirely convincing yet because these studies are generally not um, pre-registered and they're... uh, so. This is a, a movement that's happening in psychology as well as in parapsychology, um, which is to try to um, make sure that the researchers don't deviate from their plan when they do a study and when they analyse the data. And the problem is that if they didn't find what they were looking for in this, this part of the data, but they looked somewhere else, and they found something else. Then they only report the bit they found that was interesting and don't report the bit they were planning to do. And if you do that, it basically distorts the research picture. And the, the concern is that that might be present in the, the Gansfeld database, um, probably not enough to make the effect go away, but to say that, that we don't have a, a really reliable picture yet. And also the Gansfeld studies are um, kind of using all sorts of different um, designs, different participants, for example, and it takes a little while to, to spot um, kind of patterns in these groups of studies. And one pattern that seems to be coming up time and time again is the best results are with selected subjects, participants. If you do study with unselected participants, the results are near chance, generally. I mean, this is when you combine maybe 50 studies. Um, If you do um, a study with selected participants, then you tend to get what we call significant results. That means that they're not merely attributable to chance. We think there's some something in the data there. It's interesting. might not be ESP, but certainly a deviation from what we'd expect. And so what I'm planning to do and have started doing now is to do Gansfeld research with selected participants, but also doing the other things that help to um, reduce the questions about the data, which is pre-registering the studies, you know, so state what the plan is and publish it before the, the data is collected. I'm hoping to do it, particularly um, looking at creative participants who have had the highest 
uh, effects in the previous studies. So it's really trying to kind of zoom in on the recipe, if you like, for success. And I'm really excited about this. I've got funding for a, a new PhD student. And she was a, a student here um, as an undergraduate and did a Gansfeld project with me. So she's already got some track record in, in doing so. We've got positive results. So that's a good thing. And we've got some money from two different sources to do probably about a three-year program on this. So that kind of might answer two questions in terms of, you know, what are you going to be doing? You know, we've started this already. It's a long-term project, the whole thing. You know, it started probably a year or two ago with a pre-registration saying this is what our plan is, but it takes a while for it to all unfold. And it's a slow process, a Gansfeld study. One session takes about an hour and a half. And when you're doing uh, work with selected participants, it's a little bit harder to, to find that, find these people. So anyone who's listening here, if you'd like to do this, let me know. We do have two panels. One is a, a local panel. One is a long distance panel. And for the Gansfeld research, you would need to be local because you need to be able to get into the lab here in Edinburgh and spend an hour and a half probably doing an experiment. Um, some of our um, volunteers are non-local. They might be, you know, in Mexico or, or whatever. And obviously they're not traveling to the lab, but they might be able to take part in some questionnaire based research. If you're creative, you know, get in touch. Yep, we'll include a link on the podcast transcript to your site. So it's slower because it's, it takes longer to find the right people to take part in the research. And you can only really do that kind of research if you're in the fortunate position, as we are, of having a relatively stable position within a university with a stable source of funding. Of course, we have to do all the other jobs as well, so we don't have as much time because I have to teach courses and I have to mark papers and so on. But you've got the infrastructure around you to help the research progress. That's great. Thank you so much. That was the perfect segue to my next question, as a matter of fact. I wanted to ask you about the University of Edinburgh. It's a very old and renowned university. There's so many discoveries and fantastic research that has come out of this university. But I was very surprised to learn that there's a chaplain of mindfulness, the focus on mindfulness, and of course, mental health and well-being. When you talk about mindfulness, yes, that can absolutely be a mind thing. But very often, spirituality will creep into these conversations. It just seems that uh, the university is very grounded in its values, yet very open and even progressive. I don't know if any other or many other universities would have a parapsychology institute, for example. It just seems that the University of Edinburgh is very uniquely placed to have these other disciplines that are not traditionally strictly academic or scientific. Well, Edinburgh University is, is huge. Um, so I think it's a very broad church, basically. You have... Um, it, it, it has incorporated other institutions over the years. So Edinburgh College of Art is now part of Edinburgh University. I think what you're just seeing is, you know, that part in the chaplaincy and the Mindfulness Institute, you're seeing a part of the, the university that cares particularly about pastoral support and about student welfare, well-being. I think it does a great job on that. It has a divinity college, of course. And I, I don't even know what research is happening in, in that part of the university. So I'm in a, a little bubble here, which is the psychology bubble. And the, the, um, the reason why the psychology department 
was open to the idea of parapsychology was because we had a, a, an academic here, John Beloff, in the 1960s, um, who was a psychologist and a philosopher, who was doing parapsychology research because he was interested in the mind-body connection, mind-brain. And he was a dualist, so he believed, unusually for a psychologist, he, he believed that the mind and the body were separate things and that by investigating parapsychology, you would find something out about that. Um, so he was doing parapsychology here and other academics in the university knew that he was a good researcher. He was a, you know, he was no crackpot. He was a well-respected researcher. And that meant that minds were opened to doing parapsychology at Edinburgh to welcoming the counsellor bequest in and kind of presenting a bit more of a solid foundation, if you like, for parapsychology. And you mentioned whether other universities would, would have the same thing. And what tends to happen, most other universities, is that the research, they don't have a, an endowed centre or a chair like we've got, but they sometimes have um, research groups, subgroups. And there are a few of those, actually, maybe about half a dozen in Britain, many of whom have come through Edinburgh. So they did their PhDs at Edinburgh and then they went on to work as psychologists in other departments, but their research speciality was parapsychology. Now, they're not all doing psi research, but usually that's in there amongst the mix. They're doing some psi, they're doing some experiential work, they're looking at phenomenology, for example, of mediumship. Um, so they're interested in on all the different kind of angles um, of which there, there are numerous, but they're usually based within the psychology departments. So they are, they are there. Um, in terms of mindfulness, in Freiburg, um, there's um, the University Hospital in Freiburg, and it has some researchers, Stefan Schmidt, and his colleagues who are particularly interested in mindfulness and meditation. They also are interested in parapsychology and, and sci research. And also what's called the IGPP, which is a, a private research institute, also in Freiburg. It stands for Institute for Grenzgebiete der Psychologie und Psychohygiene. They also have some interest in mindfulness and meditation research. So there are um, other pockets, if you like, around the world. And the University of Northampton, I don't know if it has it now, but it used to have um, a transpersonal psychology MSc degree. And transpersonal psychology is another area where you can see overlaps with spirituality, healing, well-being, mind-body-spirit uh, issues. So although it's not um, been a major focus here at Edinburgh, we're, I guess you'd say we're pretty boring experimental parapsychologists. You know, we are asking interesting questions, but we're using a particular model, which um, throws out a particular kind of data. You know, it tends to be statistical. You come out with p-values and claim you've got an effect based on your results. But there are other uh, institutes doing other, other kinds of research. So I think that's nice to, to think that there's a kind of... Um, I feel like a jigsaw, if you like, with people working on different parts of the puzzle around the world. That's great. That's so interesting. You're Scottish, right? So we're in Scotland. And since I moved here, I've really been astounded about how entrenched parapsychology and mystical things and Celtic traditions and all of this is sort of just below the surface where you'd have to dig really deep in other places to even have a conversation or, or find any institutes or studies about it. Do you think there's something special about Scotland or uh, the British Isles? 
Good question. Uh, it could be to do with population density. You know, we have a large rural areas and there are only small parts of the country are, are really densely populated. And I think that people have a little bit more open-mindedness, if you like, I think, in the countryside. Um, I think that there's a little bit more openness to um, not knowing everything, um, to there being um, other forms of communication, for example, the second sight in Scotland. And it tends to be uh, in the Western Isles, and it's a kind of tradition that, that people have this ability to look at someone, perhaps see what their future is going to be, for example, see if they're they're ill or they, they might even be about to die. Um, so it's thought to travel down the generations. One of our PhD students, Sherry Cohn, she did her PhD on, on Second Sight. So now that probably fits better with the School of Scottish Studies in a way because she did a ethnographic kind of um, project. But it's an example of a tradition in Scotland, which is essentially a kind of psychic tradition. And it's definitely rural And I think if you look at other cultures like Iceland, for example, it's not a densely populated island. And I think you find reports of paranormal experiences, beliefs in elves. There are different forms of beliefs that, that perhaps city people would you know, not hold. So, yeah, I think it might be something to do with the countryside. Great. Thank you for explaining that. My grandmother was from Ireland, and she definitely had this. And we know there's a lot of it in our family. And I've been working on increasing my intuition I never knew you could take a course in that sort of thing until I came to Edinburgh and went to the Doyle Center. So it's absolutely fascinating, and I truly believe in it because I've experienced it my whole life. And by the way, my first four years of life were spent in a house that was built on American Indian burial ground, and there were all sorts of tales from there that even involved me. So you can see that I've had a fascination <laughs> since day one with all of this. When you talk about rural areas, it's nature, people being entrenched in nature. And I, I think that really does affect us very positively health-wise as well. So my final question to you is, do you believe the mind, body, and spirit are connected? If not, why? If so, why? Well, I, I, I don't know what spirit is. And the mind is, I suppose I'm I suppose I'm a materialist, so I, I think most psychologists are materialists. So that doesn't mean that I don't think telepathy is possible. I do think telepathy is possible, but I think that there is a, an explanation for that. So it is possible through the use of science and perhaps with the help of physics to understand how two people can communicate with one another at a distance. So I think um, it, it boils down to the brain, you know, to consciousness, and which is something that psychologists don't understand. So um, it's, a, it's something that there are many different theories as to what consciousness is, and we don't, we don't know enough yet about it. There. So I, I, it's not my area of research, but I would say that for me, the brain is the seat, if you like, of our uh, kind of being, but that we don't understand it. We don't know enough about how consciousness emerges from the brain 
And we don't know what the capabilities of consciousness are. So for me, it's perfectly possible that two people's consciousness may overlap, even though they're not in the same body. Um, so I, I don't know if that answers your question or not, but, but I'm just, I just think that there is a scientific explanation that we, we can try to discover how telepathy and psychic abilities are, are possible. And that's my mission, if you like. There are some questions that, that I don't think are amenable to science. Um, so for example, does God exist? I don't think you can actually test that. So there are some questions that I think are not part of science. And I, I think, um, when I say I'm a materialist, I mean that I think psychic experiences are part of science. We can, we can do work with it and try to, try to find out information about it. That's a beautiful and eloquent way of summing this all up. Thank you for that. It also sounds like you have a great reverence, personally and professionally, for the exercise of exploring this. I think I have to believe in science and the scientific process. Because I think that's the job. Try to discover how consciousness works, for example, how ESP works. I think we have to use these tools. Now, we're getting on to bigger questions. We probably don't have time to, to explore, you know, what's the best way of doing that research? You know, it might not be by applying the traditional scientific method. You know, there might be, we, maybe we have to pay more attention to the experiences that people are having. There are, there are some parapsychologists who feel we've rushed too quickly into the laboratory, that we should actually learn more about how psychic experiences manifest naturally before we try to craft a way to observe that in the lab. And maybe they're right. You know, I'm thinking of Stephen Browdy, um, philosopher, parapsychologist, who I think feels that we've been too quick to run into the lab. So I, I think there might be something to that. So I'm not saying I, I think there's a long way to go. And uh, but it's great to be on that journey. Great. Well, I want to thank you so much for doing this interview with the Mindstream podcast. And best wishes. We'll be watching. Thank you for having me. Are you a creative who's had psychic experiences? If so, you're a great candidate to participate in research with the Kessler Parapsychology Unit at the University of Edinburgh. I participated in this research a year ago, and it was a very nice experience. It was just a simple Q&A with the research student. And then we moved into a soundproofed, isolated building where I put some headphones on, sat back in a very big lounge chair, and went through a series of exercises. Participating in the research is open to everyone. You don't have to be located in Scotland or in the UK go to kesslerunit.wordpress.com. You'll find a participate button. You can also go to mindstream.com slash podcast and find the link on our website. The Mindstream podcast is put on by mindstreamconnect.com. Thank you for listening. This is Liza Haran signing off with love and light. Mm-hmm.